0: I mean, this can be a unique space, right? The university, it is a place of power. And so I know that it's important, right? That we are able to understand that if you have a voice, if you are in the room, you should use it.
1: This is season two of Be The Change, a podcast that shares interviews with changemakers about how they became and are becoming the change they want to see in the world. I'm Savala Nolan, director of Berkeley Law's Felton E. Henderson Center for Social Justice and author of Don't Let It Get You Down, essays on race, gender, and the body. This season of Be the Change is a collaboration with Berkeley Voices, a podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs at UC Berkeley. In this episode, I talk with Najoon Menka, a lecturer at Berkeley Law and a supervising attorney for the campus's Environmental Law Clinic. Najoon is Danaka from Alaska and Lumby from North Carolina. And in the fall of 2021, she designed and taught a new undergraduate legal studies course called Decolonizing UC Berkeley. She also taught Indigenous Peoples Law and the United States at the law school in the spring of 2022. During our conversation, Najoon and I talk about how to bring a decolonial lens to education and about the joys and challenges of being a trailblazer who's pushing against the inherited wisdom and mythology surrounding UC Berkeley, a place we love deeply and therefore, as James Baldwin said, claim the right to criticize and to call to higher levels of intellectual and moral honesty. We also get into how instinct can be a particularly powerful gift when you're part of a subordinated community, and storytelling as a portal to individual and communal healing. Nijun, thank you so much for joining me today on Be The Change.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I want to start um, with the course that you designed and taught. Um, I know it started as Racial and Colonial Foundations of UC Berkeley as an undergrad course and has since, I guess, morphed, you might say, into decolonizing UC Berkeley and maybe has a slightly different orientation in the second iteration than in the first, but um. Tell me about these courses. What were the learning objectives? What kind of material were you covering? Who who were the students that enrolled? Um, I want to just give people some sort of level setting information about this project that you did to create these two courses.
0: Yeah, so I'm really excited when I talk about um, this coursework and just this area um, of education in general. There's a lot that goes into creating a course, as I'm sure you're well aware, but this has been an enjoyable process, really, in the sense that um, I was presented with an opportunity really with the Truth and Justice Project, which is um, a collaboration between, you know, Professor Tony Platt, Professor Seth Davis, um, that's been ongoing since 2019. But I most recently joined in 2020 when I came to Berkeley and you know, the Truth and Justice Project had been doing all of this research into the archives and the history of the university, and the conversation started to shift. Okay, well, we're pulling up all of these, you know, really important, um, you know, harsh truths, all right, about the history of the university, and have you know Tony Platt had created these really amazing reports on all of this information, and had been working with students um, at the law school, and really, it came down to where's the justice aspect, right? Like. Is there a part of the Truth and Justice Project (laughs) that needs to um, be actualized? And how do we share out this information as an act of engaging with justice and really wanting to bring the students into that? So the course in and of itself right, started out as a a seminar and I titled it Racial and Colonial Foundations. really because I think that's, you know, in my mind, what <laughs> we were talking about, right? These primary reports um, go back to the inception of the university talking about, you know, the creation um, of the name Berkeley even, right? And, and you know, I think after um, the summer of 2020, we really were thinking about this um, a lot more concertedly as a community, but I think also on an individual basis, right? As an Indigenous woman, I most certainly um, felt and feel excluded when I see colonial icons lifted up and, and memorialized in spaces and places that are, um, you know, I cross that cross my path every day. And so, part of the course is really about that, right? Like the. The idea that there are, you know, a multitude of stories, worldviews, narratives, um, and cultures that have really, you know, been erased by colonialism. And so the course just really aims to think about how can we lift up those worldviews, ideologies, even institutions that have historically been marginalized or um, been otherwise erased. And so the class Um, which I was able to, I'm proud to say, get um, designated as an AC or American Cultures designation course, um, lifts up a lot of different um, histories, right? Especially within the Bay Area at large. And so, you know, we bring in um, the idea of uh, settler colonialism using uh, Natsu Taylor Saito's book on settler colonialism, race, and the law, which does a wonderful job of bringing in so many different aspects of um, the harms of imperialism forced migrations and so I'm able to think about um, and bring that to the students and we have you know a lot of students that identify as Asian or South Asian or Pacific Islander um, in in addition to Indigenous um, and of course the Bay Area is like a wealth and rich history um, of African-American history as well. And so really, I wanted to bring all of that into a class and um, share, you know, some perspectives that I knew for a fact I had never um, been exposed to in a course at a university in, you know, um, my personal experience. And really, it is about a research course, right? Lifting up those different narratives and voices and allowing the students to look for, you know, Um, a story that they want to share, right? What is the history of this place that we don't often hear about or know Mm. about or get educated about? And to do some research and to present that.
1: Yeah, I was never exposed to even really the, I mean, I was exposed to the concept of colonialism, of course, you know, through learning about the colonies as a youngster, but I I was never... um, exposed to the idea or the reality that colonial, settler colonialism is not a single event, but an an ongoing process or an ongoing project. And um, that the erasures that you're talking about are purposeful. (laughs) I mean, maybe some of them are accidental, but on on the level of a system, right, it's a purposeful erasure that's part of this project so I I mean I'm incredibly moved frankly that that um, our students are being offered this kind of education that that I certainly missed even though I went to uh, many incredibly good schools including UC Berkeley um, what is it like having undergrads in the class as opposed to you know say law students do the undergrads bring? a certain kind of energy or openness or maybe preconceptions or different
0: um,
1: instincts to the class than, than our law students might.
0: Absolutely. And it's, you know, I'm still right. This next semester I'll be teaching a larger um, version of the class for the first time. And so, you know, stay tuned to see how that goes. But this initial seminar from fall 2021 was a small cadre of like 10 students. And, they were also unique and brought different perspectives. But I will say that one thing that they um, brought up pretty consistently was really the shock. <laughs> they did they were they were not jaded, like I think some of the law students have a tendency to be um, when learning about you know, this kind of history, and it may or may not have come up in previous coursework for graduate students, but for undergrads, by and large they have this idealistic version of what Berkeley is and what the university itself is, right? And so Mm -hmm. a lot of this is um, a narrative deconstruction of right this idea that the university is based off of the civil rights movement and all of this great student leadership. And in reality, if we look at the campus, we're not really memorializing much about that particular history. We do have memorials that are focused on um, militarism, the Moral Land Grab or Grant Act, right? Things like that. And so the students are often surprised, I think, and then to hear the history of the Department of Anthropology um, and, you know, the stories that are associated with these kinds of, um, you know, I would say disturbing <laughs> past. And so I had one of my students um, in the undergrad class do a podcast sample, (laughs) um, and she called it the dark history of UC Berkeley, right? Mm. Um, So they bring with them an incredible amount of creativeness in their final projects, but also um, a real gratitude and appreciation. I mean, the evaluations that they share Basically, we're like, this should be a required class for everyone who comes to the university, right? Like, this is how impactful it was for them. And so, um, I will say though that the law students were also sharing out, um, that you know they thought that law school would have more of this kind of critical leaning lens, right? And, um, so I bring some of the decolonization conversation, um, including Natsu Taylor Saito's work to, uh, indigenous peoples law in the united states united states when i'm able to teach that and so otherwise known as federal indian law otherwise known as federal indian law <laughs> okay um, and so you know in the way that i framed the class is really about well what does decolonization look like if the case was written differently what what would be a, you know a more just outcome um, you know what would recognizing the validity Um, of an indigenous worldview look like, right? And so bringing that into daily conversation and the students appreciated that so much and were honestly just thankful that they were able to have a class like this where they thought they would have this kind of university education or experience, especially at law school, but were about to graduate and say for this class felt that they hadn't been able to experience that yet. And I think that that's, you know, a little sad, but also I'm happy to be able to provide that.
1: Well, I mean, it, it really, it exemplifies being the change, right? Of course, which is one of the reasons that I wanted to talk with you um, is because you are turning off the beaten path, right? And creating and embodying uh, the kind of change that that we hope to see or that you hope to see in the world, which is what these conversations are about. Um, I want to talk about some of the challenges and the joys of the coursework, um, either from your perspective as a professor or from the student's perspective. But before I do that, I want to just circle back because you mentioned that some of your students, you know, they weren't even familiar with the history of the Department of Anthropology on campus. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to guess that some of our listeners are not familiar um, with the origins of that department or the work of that department. I wonder if I could, if I could impose on you to just kind of unpack it, you know, in a quick and dirty way just to give people a little bit of an idea of, of uh, what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So the university, you know, initially did not have a anthropology department, but was keen to create one. And eventually um, Alfred Kroeber came to the university and, you know, anthropology in and of itself, I would say is undergoing, you know, and undergoes iterations of, of what is acceptable and professional and ethical, Right. During these early 1800s, mid 1800s, um, and late 1800s, anthropology was, um, you know, really focused on indigenous peoples and the assumption that indigenous peoples were going to be extinct. Right. And so this was, you know, kind of a let's, do a scavenger hunt and see, you know, the oldest, most traditional indigenous person that we can find and extract as much information from them as possible. And this is really what, you know, anthropologists were doing at the time. And, you know, a lot of folks will come to Alfred Kroeber's defense and say, you know, which is a similar defense, which we hear a lot about, right? It's a man of his times and he was actually better than most. Um, you know what the fact of the matter is is that they, um, under Alfred Krober's leadership, you know there was a plethora of um, grave digging and grave looting occurring across the state of California and abroad. And you know when um, Ishi uh, you know finally was forced out of his traditional homelands, and Alfred Krober you know messages and says, I will come and get him. And he comes and he, he brings this, you know, indigenous Yagi man to the museum to live and work as somewhat, I would call it like an indentured servant, right? Mm-hmm. You stay here, you know, he was employed as a janitor, but also was, you know, building and exhibiting um, traditional, you know, customary indigenous practices for show. Um, it's and,
1: extraordinarily you know, uh the exploitation is is just
0: breathtaking, really. It's difficult for me to talk about it because there's, I think, you know, um, a perspective that it's time to let Ishi rest. And by centering the conversation around Ishi, right, we're not allowing um, him to do that. Um, But at the same time, right, there's a courtyard on campus Um, at Dwinelle Hall, which is where I taught the Racial and Colonial uh, Foundation Seminar. And it just, it says Ishii Court. And there's nothing, there's no placard. There's no um, understanding of who Ishii is, um, the importance and uh, why it's important to remember Ishii, right? So the narrative saliency is really like stopping at... um, just saying that this existed at one point, but the university hadn't done anything more, right? And so one of my students did a reimagining of what Ishii Court could look like, right? And actually created a, um, a digital, you know, um, rendition for part mm. of their final project. I mean, the students were really ingenious, right? But this is just goes to, to show that um, the history of the university is like vast and varied and in lots of many ways is hidden and one of the things that I, I choose to do when I frame the course um, is to talk about why it's important to tell the stories and how telling that story um, and telling these stories is a form of healing, right? I frame, you know, one of the, the first articles I have the students read is um, about historical trauma, right? As public narrative. And how that impacts present day health, and why? Why um, do memorials, right, when done the right way, create space for healing?
1: I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you do in the course. Um, how you talk about storytelling as a form of healing or as a, a portal to healing. You know, I come at, at that particular idea. Um, as a writer and an author, and a, a black woman who's descended from enslaved people, and and um, when I write and speak about that part of my personal history, which is also part of our collective history in this country, you know the history of chattel slavery, it is healing. Um, and I'm also always really wary of kind of freezing my forebears and kind of the amber of trauma and um, in a way that has a sort of aura about it of like display more than transformation. Right. And I'm curious how you all reckon with that in the course. I mean, especially given that this history that you're describing, UC Berkeley's history, um, it is history, but it's also the present, right? People walk through that courtyard that you were mm-hmm. describing. And so it's the past, but it's also right now in its own way too. So I, I'd love your thoughts about how you reckon with with those ideas in your course.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a really a, a good question. I think the students, um, and I think myself, right, I, I approach this with you know, a level of mutuality and dynamism, right? This is a learning experience for all of us. Um, But when it comes to, you know, understanding how to best move through spaces and to tell these stories, right? Like, I do think that when it comes to the community connections, right? I had students who wanted to reach out to um, different indigenous communities and I had to, you know, ask them to, slow down and think about, is this extractive? (laughs) Right? What is the benefit of bringing this up to the community for your limited participation for a semester in a course? Mm -hmm. Right? Um, And that's a, you know, one way to balance it out, right? Is this something that is going to be beneficial for the community? Mm -hmm. Um, Or is this just because you want a good grade? And I think that when we are trying to create um, and lift up different stories, that there's a lot of respect that has to come along with that. And really, I, I think this is an area, of course, that could actually be improved upon because the research methodologies that I share out with the students, I, I have them read Linda Toohey-Smith's Decolonizing Meth- Methodologies, which is about right, like how to um, do research that is focused on um, reducing erasure. And so there's lots of different um, possibilities for them to lean into work. And if it's a particular project that could be viewed as extractive or not beneficial to the community, then I, you know, I just kind of push back on that. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, a really good question. I personally, um, outside of the coursework, really lean into, you know, trying to engage on a case by case basis, right, with that kind of a conversation. And I think it really matters um, what the community wants. And so, you know, if there was anybody who was looking to do work on um, public uh, memorialization, right, like that has to be done with the community. Like, I can't say, you know, I don't speak for all Indigenous peoples. (laughs) Right. And,
1: and, you know, no people is a monolith. So there may, in theory, be differing instincts and intuitions among Indigenous people, even of the same community, about how to address these concerns, right?
0: Exactly. Exactly. And so trying to hear from the community, I think, is always really important. Um, You know, I think an interview can be useful um, for students and to learn about that. Uh, but I also think it should be in a way done in a way that that information is returned to the community and not necessarily because I do try to have my students do stuff that can be publicly available. Um, but sometimes that's, you know, the projects they that they might want to engage in isn't necessarily fit for that. Mm-hmm.
1: I want to circle back to the challenges and the joys of what you're doing and I want to root our exploration of the challenges and the joys I want to really strongly root it in the fact that you created this course where before there was none Um, because one of the goals of, of this podcast series and these conversations is that We're giving listeners and law students um, tools or vocabulary or capacity um, for thinking about how they too might create things that don't currently exist um, and that are in service of a higher good and a broader good and a more capacious understanding of fairness, right, in their communities. So if I can trouble you to think back to, to Um, the process of creating or kind of unveiling this course. Of course, when you teach, you know, you're kind of always in the process of course creation. But if you can kind of put your mind in that gear, I would love to know where the joy or the happiness or the sense of satisfaction um, and accomplishment has come up for you. And also some of the things that were just really tough nuts to crack as you were trying to get this coursework off the ground and institutionalized?
0: Yeah, honestly, you know, this has been um, really all first-time experiences for me, right? Yes. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> so <laughs> I about right. Join the club. <laughs> in, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Every day I'm paving the way. <laughs> yes. Um, I, you know, i Obviously, I've been blessed to have worked with you know um, Tony Platt and Seth Davis in this work, and they have absolutely mentored um, me through this process. And so, you know, because I was partnering with the Truth and Justice Project, and because the primary materials had been researched, right, and really this was like, we've got to create a course to get this out, right, as that actualized justice part of of, of TJP, and. It was like, well, who would teach the class? And it was just crickets on the email for a while. <laughs> so, and I was like, well, you know, this is information that's rooted in a lot of the work that I'd done historically um, in working with community, uh, you know, over the course of, uh, you know, <laughs> a few decades. And I did think to myself, I was like, this is an opportunity for for me to, to teach in a way and... Um, with substance that, you know, I can curate, right? Because, you know, I'll share just a little short story about, you know, me um, taking a course as an undergraduate at North Carolina State University. And I believe it was a course titled Native American History. Hmm. And I just recall the professor telling the class that the Dawes Allotment Act was enacted by Congress with benevolent intentions. Right. So Oof. that this, this act was not nefarious. It didn't have any ill intent associated with it. And so like at my core, like I knew this was wrong. This is like, you know, throwing up the red flags for me in the classroom. And so I challenged that professor in class. Um, and I remember the other native American student um, that was in class with me. I think there was just one other and, uh, they were not as uh, vocal of a person as I was, and so they just they didn't say anything. And I just remember feeling destroyed over this, right? Because I well, I was angry, but at the same time, I was also kind of sad about it. Um, and so I really didn't feel like I would say vindicated about that experience until many years later, while I was you know um, taking a law course for the first time and actually learned about the Dawes Act was part of this, you know, huge, um, very concerted effort, you know, and part of an era of federal government policy to break up, you know, indigenous communal land holdings and was an effort to assimilate indigenous peoples into Western society, right? This is what I knew must surely have been the case, but didn't hear about it until, you know, maybe 15 years later. And so, I really saw the opportunity to work with um, TJP and and to create this course as a way to like give back to students who I know are looking for these truths and this validation of something's not sitting well with you when you hear something that Mm -hmm. might not necessarily, um, you know, be getting them, even though we're, you know, at a place like Berkeley. Um,
1: I love that you are in some ways honoring that little instinct that, students can have or any of us can have when you hear something particularly if it's coming from a source of power and you just like it just it just sets your radar off you know it just kind of makes your ears perk up a little bit and I I think that is uh more often than not incredibly valuable knowledge um you know it's (laughs) I'm, I'm this I'm using an oversimplified example here but like uh, you know, if, if you're the, in a subordinated position in society, you have to be very, very attuned to things that are a threat, <laughs> right? right? Um, it's like almost an animal instinct about whether a predator is near you. I'm not saying that professor was a predator and you were prey. I mean, I'm you know using that analogy, although it's imperfect. I'm just trying to um articulate that that when a student is in class or when I'm in a meeting or wherever it may be and someone says something and you ha- you have that little inner inner feeling of feeling threatened or feeling um, in the crosshairs in some way, there's often some truth to that and it's I think because as it's a survival skill when you are yeah. in a subordinated position within a, a culture. So I'd love to hear you honoring that. I may be putting a little, I don't know, maybe putting words in your mouth the way I described it, but um, no. I'd love to hear you re- responding to that experience that students have.
0: I mean, I think we do all have that, um, especially if we're coming from, you know, as first-generation college students, I think um, trying to challenge, I mean, this can be a unique um space right the university Mm -hmm. it is a place of power and so i know that it's important right that we are able to understand that if you have a voice if you are in the room you should use it (laughs) and i it's taken i I will say law school i think really was the catalyst for me to really lean into that and, and lean into it comfortably and you know um I'm a non-traditional uh, law student. I was a non-traditional law student. And, you know, I'm older than a lot of my peers who are just starting um, this work into uh, professordom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I know that, you know, I think it's really important that we're, you know, sharing our experiences and validating those. Um, and so I appreciate you flagging that. Because, yeah, I, I do agree with you, right? It was, it was very much part of... Um, I'd say my, you know, youth growing up knowing that something isn't sitting well with me right here. What is it? Right? Well, I remember growing up in Alaska, for example, as an Alaska native person, it was quite hostile. And I didn't understand why until many, many, many years later that I learned that Jim Crow laws in Alaska, segregation laws in Alaska, the signs on businesses said no natives, no Filipinos and no dogs. Right. And so Mm -hmm. That was like, what? <laughs> I just had no clue, right? The history, um, and how it really informs where we are today, right? And if we don't talk about it, we can't heal from it, right? So it's just, you know, part of the work I think that we all should be doing personally.
1: Yes, and Jim Crow in particular. I mean, that's living memory. That's not exactly ancient history. <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. So it it's its tentacles reach into our own lives in ways that are subtle and overt. I want to talk a little bit about um, what for you makes this work, this coursework that you're creating successful. Um, in some ways that's kind of a tricky word, you know, because I I definitely don't mean metrics metrics of success, like how many people are on the wait list or, you know, how much are you being paid to teach it? I'm thinking of success in a more um, capacious way, right? Like, what is the transformed world like if this course is successful? Mm. Um, and that transformation could be big or little. You know, you could be thinking fifty years out or just about one student. But you know, when we start projects that are meant to have an impact, it's helpful to think and to rethink as we go along about what success looks like. So, From your perspective, as the person who created this um, research project and the coursework, you know, what becomes possible if your coursework is successful?
0: Well, you know, one of the reasons that I reframed the class um, from, you know, kind of this passive racial and colonial foundations of Cal to decolonizing UC Berkeley was really to engage with an active voice, right? Like let's understand that this is, like you had mentioned, right? Settler colonialism is not an event, it's a process. And our work on decolonization is also a process. And the class really just asks us to think about, you know, what does it look like if we welcome a plethora of worldviews, right? What if at the law school, we're recognizing, you know, three sovereigns, right? The native nations as, the first sovereigns of this land and engaging with all of our, you know, um, understandings of, you know, what uh, public law is and including, um, you know, Native nations in that, right? That's about reducing the erasure of Native nations as institutions at the law school. So, you know, that's one thing I think that future lawyers would start to be thinking about when they're engaging in this kind of work. Um, The other thing is really, you know, making sure that we understand how important storytelling is. I think a lot of folks don't think of lawyers as storytellers, first and foremost, but Mm. (laughs) I talk about it all the time. (laughs) And I think it's really important that we um, understand the power, number one, of our own stories. And number two, the powerful stories um, that the past has to tell us. Right. Because we we don't want to repeat all of these, you know, um, the tragic histories that have unfolded here. And, you know, there's this often, you know, this reaction to the word decolonization is like, well, what does that mean? You know, I'm not I'm not Native American, does that mean I have to leave? <laughs> and that's, you know, what um, I think is, we're calling like a faux choice, right? It's not about that. It's like, are you going to be willing to do the work of decolonization? Are you going to be willing to do the work to lift up um, these different worldviews, which are, we all have, right? Whatever culture and communities you come from, right, that's worthy of a voice as well. And it's not about centering um, Indigenous folks always and forever. It's really about making sure that we are um, embracing, right, our collective communities and Also, while also recognizing the culture and rich history of the land on which we stand, right? And so I'm I'm hopeful that on, you know, like a macro level, um, the university will see that this is important and it will shift the narrative of the story that they tell of themselves and how they recognize that story. Um, I think, you know, there's uh, a lot of ways within which we as a community, within a community, right, uh, as UC Berkeley, Within the city of Berkeley, on ancestral Ohlone homelands, can begin to embrace and recognize and lift up and celebrate, um, you know, a multitude of different worldviews. And so, I think there's opportunity to do any and all of the above, um, but it does require it does require work. And I was very intentional about, you know, the readings that I chose for the class and um, the the possibilities that students, you know. Are able to select um, different projects that speak to them, right? So that they're brought in to do this work of, of decolonization and on a personal level, um, and hopefully able to share it out. In fact, one of my students last semester uh, just published her final project—or not from last semester, but fall twenty twenty one—in um, the Daily Cal.
1: Oh, congratulations to her! Yes, That's exciting. Her-
0: Yes, very cool. She did a little piece on Memorial Stadium and telling the true history there and got it published. And so success.
1: (laughs) Yes, that is success. I mean, a lot of what you're talking about, you know, it's not a legal way to put it, but a lot of what you're talking about is really busting the walls open on our imagination and and our memory, right? Our, Our collective memory, in a way that is much more responsible and honest than um, kind of the status quo, I think. And I, right. I just have to say, you Najun, know, I love that you, you <laughs> I, I hadn't heard that term before of a faux choice about the response to, you know, calls for decolonization and sort of the, Oh, well, what do I have to do move? Um, I mean, maybe, but I love that you <laughs> um, <laughs> highlight that as, like, that can't be the end of the conversation. You know, I think about this a lot with regard to anti black racism in the United States. And it's like, the argument of, you know, well, I wasn't alive and during slavery. And you know, so what is my what responsibility do Mm -hmm. I have now? And like, sure, okay, I, I get that to an extent. But it's sort of like, if you live in the house that your great grandparents built, like, no, you didn't build it, but you live there now. And if there's a leak, like, you have to fix it, you know? Um, So thank right. you for, for expanding my vocabulary with that that wonderful faux choice.
0: I um, do believe that's wonderful. Nazi Taylor Saito's language. Okay. Okay. Yes, Shout credit where credit
1: out. is due. Always, always. But I learned it through you. So I'm thanking you. Um, The last question I want to ask you, Najoon, is what is one thing that you wish someone had told you before you started this work, right, before you actually begin the process of building out a course and going through the hoops of having it slated on a schedule and approved? What's something you wish someone had told you that would have made it easier to get started,
0: Well, I think that it's actually the hardest part about creating the courses, you know, developing the content and doing the, you know, intellectual, you know, thought leadership work to make sure that it's curated in a way that's going to be effective. Right. So I wanted that was really like the labor um, intensive part. Um, Once I had, you know, an ear, right? So shout out to John Marshall at Legal Studies and Tony Platt for getting the initial seminar going and approved and, and getting me paid for it. <laughs> so yes. no light lift there. HR. Yep. I is, know about uh, a... <laughs> And so the that was also like the intense labor, but it was also really intensive joy associated with that because I was bringing in so many different pieces of You know my academic trajectory, you know at my you know soon to be forty four year old life into this one class where I was like hopefully this is going to be as impactful as possible while not overwhelming the students right Mm. and so that I think for me was the most difficult thing and then also it was kind of hard to get the American Cultures designation because they really want you to have three. cultures discussed (laughs) heavily. (laughs) Um, But uh, this class, I think, is really, um, that actually forced me to think, rethink teaching the course um, through more of a settler colonialism lens rather than a critical race theory lens. Hmm. Um, And I mean, it was the right choice, right? And so going through that process um, made me rethink the theoretical underpinnings of the class. And so but that still dovetails with the intellectual work that is required to create a class and to curate the readings. Um, But it's also, it was the greatest part of doing the work too. And um, I freely share the syllabus, which a lot of people don't like to share their syllabi out, Mm -hmm. Um, but I share this with anyone and everyone who asks.
1: So, I mean, it sounds like, it would have been, you know, fabulous if you had been assured ahead of time that there would be intense joy in the process of coalescing what you know into um, a thing of great potency and impact, right? That that it wasn't just work. It would also be joyful. And that is a takeaway that that I'm more than happy for our students to have.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm very proud of the fact that I put this work together, but I'm more, you know, excited about the prospect of sharing this with students because it is a game changer. I had a student who did their project and was like, "Najun, I got into grad school with my project for your class. You know, like mm. these stories, right. Or my graduate student that was working with me on the class, Najun, I changed, you know, the trajectory of uh, what, what I wanted to focus on with my thesis because of your class, right? Like, that's creating change, right? And, and in a good way, I I hope.
1: (laughs) Najoon, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for being an example of the change that we want to see in this world through creating this coursework and sharing it with a spirit of generosity uh, for the whole community. I just, I'm honored to know you and honored to chat with you. And I'm so thankful for you.
0: I will extend all of that and reflect it right back to you because I think that um, your movement lawyering class and the space you create for our students is um, invaluable. And now you're creating space for your colleagues. Thank you so much. This season of Be the Change is a collaboration between Berkeley Law
1: and the Office of Communications and Public Affairs at UC Berkeley. It was produced by me, Anne Bryce. To hear each episode, follow Berkeley Voices wherever you get your podcasts and look for the special Be the Change series. You can listen to the episodes and read the transcripts on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. You can also find Be the Change on Berkeley Law's podcast hub at law.berkeley.edu slash podcast.